0: Welcome to On the Books. I'm Brian Niemeyer, Niemeyer brianniemeyer.com. And we have a very special episode for you this evening. Joining me is Nebula Award nominee, multiple Hugo nominee, and Dragon Award winner for Best Science Fiction Novel, author John C. Wright. Mr. Wright, thank you for joining us.
1: Good evening. Pleasure to be here.
0: Pleasure to be here. Yes, and unless I'm mistaken... Terribly Mistaken, you have a new book out
1: right now? Yes, it just came out this uh, week. It's called City of Corpses. It's the second book in the second trilogy of my 12-volume duodecology called Moth and Cobweb. The trilogy is called uh, The Dark Avenger Sidekick. The book is called City of Corpses.
0: Excellent. And, and uh,
1: everyone the only story you're going to read this year starring showgirl ninja uh, elf fighters who have kidnapped fairy friends and a talking dog in New York. I think that's the only New York ninja fairy story that you're probably going to read this year.
0: That is a lot of strange attractors, but uh, I think it works. I think it's brilliant. So you folks out there listening can find it in the show notes. There's a link to it. From Castelli House. So, seeing as how well, we have the, the reigning Dragon of Science Fiction, Science Fiction Grandmaster here. I figured we would talk about Science Fiction. Excellent. But first of all,
1: let's define our terms. What is Science Fiction? That is an excellent question and one that we could probably spend an entire Uh, show on, but I myself have come up with what I think is a nice easy way of defining it. I think science fiction is the mythology of a scientific age. I think that all previous forms of literature have tried to encapsulate truths by means of fictions. That's what storytelling is. Storytelling is a lie that is spoken in the service of the truth. So that when, when Homer pens the Iliad, he actually is writing down what the nature of war is in a way that is more Truthful, because it will speak more clearly to the human heart than if he just wrote down a laundry list of facts. That's 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 the poet's job is to is to look at the the essence behind the facts and to just give you the concrete image of an imponderable. Now, in the ancient world, uh, before the Industrial Revolution and in the medieval world, the worldview did not have an idea that history was going to change in terms of an ongoing progress of technical or scientific improvement. The idea of improvement, the idea of progress is a new idea. It was much more common for the ancients to believe in uh, for example the Hindus believed in the wheel of time which would turn and turn again uh, uh, the, uh, the, Stoics, the Roman Stoics believed that the universe would burn periodically and come back together and, and it would just be an endless loop. The Christian idea was, was linear. It started from the creation, the fall, the redemption, the second coming the New Jerusalem, and then the story ends. So it was like a story, not like a wheel. But even then, the nothing in the uh, in the Book of the Apocalypse, nothing in the visions of Saint John, uh, Saint John spoke about spaceships or submarines or or land ironclads. But at about the time of Jules Verne and H. G. Wells, and about the time of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, people became aware that the scientific method, the scientific progress was going to change the lives of their grandkids and they were naturally curious about it. They were naturally curious about the way they are curious about about, uh, foreign countries. So the kind of traveler's tales that someone like Lemuel Gulliver might tell in Gulliver's Travels, or uh, that Daniel Defoe might tell about a guy stranded on an island, or that Marco Polo might tell about the Far East, the kind of traveler's tales that no one could travel into the future and see, they wanted to hear about. They wanted to hear about how their grandkids were going to live. And so, from that, the, the, uh, the genre was born. And it's born, as most genres are, as a group of stories that had some qualities in common, some characteristics they shared, like a family resemblance. The reason why a lot of people have such trouble defining what the, what's inside and outside science fiction is not because we don't know where the major island in the archipelago lies, it's just that there's some outlying islands that no one's really sure if they're supposed to be part of the archipelago or if they're something else. Magical realism, horror, weird tales, fantasy, space opera, whatever. If you see what I'm saying. But the family resemblance of science fiction is, a science fiction story has to have all the elements that any other story has to have. It's got to have characters, it's got to have plot, it's got to have theme, it's got to have lyricism, it's got to have all the other storytelling elements. But there's one thing that a science fiction story has that no other type of story uh, can ever have, which is world building world for a science fiction or a a modern fantasy story. When Homer added fantastical elements like gods and ghosts or a a trip to the underworld by Odysseus, he was not making up elements that were unfamiliar to, that were new to his audience. They all knew who the gods were. They all knew who who he was talking about. No one was surprised by the surprise ending of uh, uh, Prometheus Bound, for example. They all knew that Prometheus was going to end up stapled to a mountain in the Caucasus. Uh, but they, but when a, a, uh, a modern science fiction writer is writing, he's got to say in what way the new world, the next world, the next generation is going to be different from the current world. And it can be small, uh, like in in a, in a Jules Verne type story, where the only difference is a new invention. Or it can be large, like in a uh, uh, H.G. Wells story, where there's a time machine or a, or a space traveling sphere that can take you to the moon that's going to be inhabited by socialist insects. The, the difference between a Jules Verne type story and a, and a H.G. Wells type story has existed from that day to this because they're actually two slightly different subgenres. Usually, Jules Verne stories are called uh, technical SF or hard SF, and H.G. Wells stories are usually called social SF or soft SF. Okay. And so have- my own particular field is I basically take fairy tale and I dress it up kind of in vaguely science fiction y flavored props and stuff. <laughs> it's, that's what a space opera is. And you have to blow up a planet. I think it's the rule for space opera. You have to blow up at least one planet. You know, so for example, Star Wars space opera, they planet. planet. Uh, the Lensman series by uh, Doc Smith, space opera. Uh, Star Trek. I'm not sure, but I think that in the movies they blew up the planet Vulcan in in one of the sequels. Yes. So, so. but a Star Trek is, I would say, is not is not a, a, a science fantasy or or, or 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 space opera the same way. Uh, the same way Star Wars is. I mean, Star Wars is, is uh, you know, you have space wizards who are attacking an evil, mysterious, horrible castle that happens to be round and the, as big as a moon. Uh, anything that relies on gigantism, anything that relies on the huge uh, uh, issues involved, the larger-than-life characters, uh, uh, villains that wear black cl- cloaks and skull masks and sound like obscene phone calls. I mean, that's, that's what makes it a space opera. Hard SF is they, they, you try to put in a little bit of a science to give a uh, a, f- a phony feeling of verisimilitude to your uh, to your hokum. There, don't get me wrong, hard SF is still hokum, but it's realistic hokum. It's more realistic than than soft SF or than, than space opera hokum. So do you see so, a
0: difference between mill SF and space opera? Are there going to be some overlap?
1: Very much difference. No, I say there's no overlap, and I'll tell you why. Uh, See, if you keep in mind my theory, my theory is that genres have like family resemblances to each other, Mm -hmm. so that everyone who descended from Roger Big Nose has his big nose and is a member of his family. Well, all all military SF is descended from basically uh, Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers or, if you like, from Joe Haldeman's Forever War. Those stories were not space opera in any way because in space opera there's usually one guy who is larger than life not just a hero, but a, a a superhero who usually has I don't know like a lens or a magic amulet or Jedi powers or something ridiculous that will help him throw planets around like billiard balls and, and smash all galaxies into each other. In the end of in the end of Skylark Duquesne by Doc E, e. Smith, the the fourth book in his Skylark or space series, which he started in 1939 and finished up in 1952, so it's a it's a one of the oldest, one of the largest in time, a set of sequels that I that I know of. Uh, he has two entire galaxies be obliterated by teleporting a star from the first galaxy into the star from the second galaxy, over and over again, millions and billions of times, so that every single star in the galaxy goes supernova. <laughs> That'll do it. Okay, that's not Mill SF. I'm sorry, Mill SF. If you follow Starship Troopers, here's what Starship Troopers did that was unique. No mm-hmm. other book before it had had this approach. You tell the story from the point of view of a foot-slogger, of a, of, a, of a guy, you know, a trench warrior, of a guy who's just a, a, a normal guy who is a normal grunt. Not a hero, not a king, not a knight on horseback, but just a guy holding a spear. In Starship Troopers, the reader is never even told what the causes nor the outcome of the war, because the average foot-soldier would not be aware of those things. He's not a politician, well, uh, reasons were for, for why they got into the mess. He's just there to go kill the enemy and, and come home. Uh, both Starship Trooper and and um, Forever War de-emphasized heroism. If you remember, the, the fight scenes in those books were very abbreviated, and there was almost no personal risk on the part of the of the main character that the, that was different from what everyone around him was also suffering. If that makes sense, the story was not about. It
0: almost. Yeah, it was almost like a like a war correspondence news report, you know, kind of kind of objective, yes. kind of sterile, right. yeah,
1: kind of, kind of objective, and kind of sterile, because it was from the the point of view of a professional soldier. Now, not all MLSF follows in that exact uh, a rut, but they do tend to have a family resemblance. They tend to de-emphasize the heroics, to emphasize the the nitty-gritty of the of the fighting, to to tell it from the point of view. Not not necessarily of a, of a hero or a knight, but of a of a CEO or a, or a, a grunt, a foot soldier, a, a sailor, a, a marine. Uh, the uh, uh, some of it is almost like film noir. It's almost it's, it's almost like at a street level uh, approach, but the the uh, the emphasis and the appeal is usually on the realism of the military tactics involved, the military weapons involved, and the, the harshness of the life involved. Uh, I don't know of any military SF story where the guy uh, is uh, floats to the battle in his spaceship filled entirely with uh, pillows and beautiful girls, uh, <laughs> who then, while he's eating a luscious fruit, he pushes one button and his AI decides to uh, uh, obliterate the enemy fleet by means of shooting his black hole gun at them that's that that sounds nothing like a military sf story but if the story is like the movie aliens aliens with an s the second movie that's a mil sf story right those guys those guys are recognizable marines there was even a short timer <laughs> a guy who was who was going to get out in two weeks and uh they had a second lieutenant in charge uh, who was uh, like any second lieutenant anyone in the military has ever met. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the, uh, the troopers are much better off when he's unconscious for most of the film. <laughs> oh, I love that movie, I should just say. Because I, I, the first movie, the first alien movie was a horror, horror movie. If you want to talk about the difference between genres. The main emphasis there was the horror of the alien. and The main emphasis on the second one was the, was the, uh, the difficulty of the situation from, a, from a, the grunt's point of view. So that's my that's my that's my uh, definition of a mil SF, and why it's different, very different, I would say, from from space opera. You don't meet. I mean, the soldiers meet in, uh, in Star Wars. I mean, maybe you meet Dax, who is the gunner for for Luke when they're trying to trip a walking tank or something. But th- you remember the scene where he's dueling with his father on the edge of a of a giant. Uh, 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 drop where he you know calls out in horror when he finds out the uh, the the Greek tragedy of his of his life. That's that's larger than life action.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the, the the scene with the discussion between two characters. Personally, I've found is one of the greatest action scenes in in a sci-fi film, and it, like not just the duel preceding it, but their discussion. You know, just the. The dramatic tension in that scene and just over the top
1: it's not a very long discussion It's only it's only a line of dialogue or two yeah, yeah. Just, now, just
0: how I just, how, just I just heard
1: I yesterday what it was that the guy in the suit actually said he said oh he because nobody knew he was gonna say I'm your father nobody but Luke's but uh, George Lucas right. and the actor and of course um, uh, the voice uh, I can't think of his name. The guy who played Simba. James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. And, uh, David Prowse was in the suit. How could, I, how could I forget? How could I forget the name of James Earl Jones? He's got the best voice in uh, in the acting field. James Earl Jones knew what he was saying. James Everyone else heard the guy say, the guy in the suit, who was also saying the lines. Uh, Anthony Daniels was his name? Or is, or is it that's C-3PO? David, David Prowse. David Prowse. Yeah, my, mistake. Uh, my, my apologies. My apologies uh, uh, he said, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi killed your father. That was, the, that was the fake line. And the guy goes, no, that's not true. Of course, but that's not really what he said. They edited that in, see? And I just thought... Would... It no, yeah. Well, do we have a question? I would thought between... it was more brilliant if it had been planned out from, from ahead of time. Yeah. Because despite what everyone says, I do not believe that George Lucas had anything planned ahead of time. I think when he wrote the first movie, which is called Star Wars, thank you, not, not a new hope, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, that he had no idea that's he was. Luke Skywalker's dad was a, was a brave pilot who had been killed by, by Darth Vader. He yeah, well, our, uh, people, our good mutual and friend Tom Simon, and, and they certainly, they certainly <laughs> didn't think that, <laughs> they certainly did not think that that Leia was his sister because that makes everything that happens in the first two movies ridiculously creepy.
0: Yeah, yeah, our uh, our good mutual friend Tom Simon wrote an essay on the Star Wars trilogy and how Lucas Brown and Lee Brackett tried Empire Strikes Back and how she, it was has synthesized a lot of these elements. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he's not sure if it was her, or if it was Lords Kasdan or Irvin Kirshner, uh, because originally there were, Anakin was still a separate guy from Vader. Yeah. And yeah. Luke, his ghost and Obi-Wan's on Hoth and, uh, the, the brilliant decision was the decision to combine those characters, and it brought both plot threads just tied them together. Because originally, Luke goes off to Dagobah, and then Han and Leia and the droids are on the Falcon trying to invade the Empire. And they're trying to figure out how do we get them back together. Yeah, and um, combining Anakin
1: and Vader just closed. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. The, yeah, closed the gap.
0: Yeah,
1: and I can I can hardly think of any sequel that I thought was as good as or even better than. The original, but I have to say that Empire Strikes Back is is one of them. There are people who like the first movie more, but uh, even those guys don't don't say the second movie is is uh, you know is is a piece of garbage. Now, on the other hand, Highlander 2, I think, is maybe the worst sequel of all time. <laughs> and if you're laughing, that means you've seen it, which means your IQ is actually 10 points less than it was before you went into to see that movie.
0: John C. McGinley, like trying to do his impression of Orson Welles or something, is just, <laughs> it's just—it's painful.
1: It was truly bad. I am Connor McLeod from the Planet of the I'm really glad that in the third movie and in the TV show, which I actually thought was pretty good for a spinoff, yeah. uh, uh, that they just forgot entirely about the Planet of and they never tried to, they never tried to re-weave that into the continuity. If they had been doing Hawkman as a movie, they would have tried to reweave it into the continuity to make sense of every single possible different origin story for the character, instead of just quietly letting it die. So, but that's another that's another. That's a whole another show. Hawkman right. is a show of his, of his own.
0: We have a question from the chat. Getting back to world building. Excellent. So, is the idea not just world building, but uh, conceptually new? world building? Is there, does there have to be a conceptually new
1: element? To be uh, science fiction or fantasy? Yeah. I don't know what it means to be a conceptually old world if there's nothing different about our current world. Mm. So, the answer is, I don't understand the question, Professor. Because if, if it's just a world that's like ours but not ours, um, I think that would technically count as science fiction, but it wouldn't give the science fiction reader what he wants out of it. Mm. If that makes sense? I mean, if you just, if you just set a story in Ruritania, like Prisoner of Zenda, it, but you don't make any reference to anything in, in the real world, of our world, and you don't tie it back into our world, uh, how is that just not a mainstream story?
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say there, there has to be some speculative some. element for it to be world building in the first place.
1: So I will tentatively agree, and yet with this caveat, I was just reading uh, William Morris's Would on the World, which is, mm. I think, the first of the modern fantasy books. And it takes place in a world that is not our world, and yet is, shares our history. There's references to, to St. Catherine and St. Nicholas, for example. St. Nicholas, uh. the patron saint of sailors, is mentioned by name, by a sailor. Uh, you know, there's some somewhere. There's a Roman Catholic church, but the, but the, the, uh, the land that, that uh, the main character is from is as fictional as Gilder and Florin from the movie Princess Bride and from the book, also Princess Bride. They're they're vaguely supposed to be kind of our world, but it's 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 clearly a fantasy world. So I'll I'll say that it sh- I'll say that it shades into it. There's I I, I say I, I'd say there's not a sharp line of demarcation. Because mm-hmm. if you're going into the twilight world of the elves, it just it just gradually gets stranger and stranger the further away you go from the fields you know. But I will say that if it takes place in the here and now, and all the elements are the same as what we know here and now, it's not science fiction. You, you, you either have to take place in another world, usually usually the future, but not necessarily the future. Or there has to be some element from the future thats is, that, that is intruding on our present reality, like a new invention and the implications of what that invention would be.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I love the detail, by the way, of a sailor mentioning St. Nicholas and, or a patron of sailors. So, nothing he was doing.
1: He also invented the Morris chair and wallpaper. Right. No, he didn't invent wallpaper. He just designed wallpaper. Oh.
0: oh, okay. Not close enough. So, now that we've defined science fiction, so, I- I'm going to ask you a question hmm. that, a uh, before, I think before, that-
1: we, before we move on, I want want to add a caveat to my definition. The reason why I call it a mythology of the modern age is because I don't think it's like a literature that is uh, neutral when it comes to great, glorious, heavenly, and diabolical things. I think that that good science fiction has to touch on certain internal concepts which we're in a position to do better than a mainstream author to define what it means to be human, what is man. (laughs) If a mainstream author wants to answer the riddle of the sphinx, and say what a man is. You can't do what H.G. Wells does and take you to the future after man is gone, and show you the Eloi and the Morlocks who are the descendants of man, and answer the Sphinx's question from another point of view, from from outside, or show you a robot, or uh, you know the Tin Woodman, or show you something that is intelligent as a man but is not a man who can show you the contrast as to what the essential elements of mankind are. Or even show you what happens when a man turns into a frog or a man turns into a werewolf or something. You see. But a fantasy or a science fiction story has all those, has all those options. If, a man, if, a, if your main character is a human who is, thinks he's not a human, in a mainstream book that guy has to be insane. There's no other option. But in a science fiction story, he, he could be right. He could be the robot duplicate of a guy who's dead, whose brain was recorded into his electronic brain and who you know, thinks he's someone other than he is. Or whatever, he could be a reincarnation. He could be he could be uh, resurrected by the resurrection machine, or, or or what have you. Or it could be an alien.
0: He could, and that that goes into what is science fiction for?
1: It's to entertain the uh, it's to entertain the uh, the uh, the customer. What is dance for? I don't know. What's poetry for? It's to remind you that there's more to life than than work, sleep, and uh, and uh, the pursuit of meaningless pleasures. It's to uh, let you uh, get a glimpse of life beyond the uh, galaxy, the cosmos-sized coffin that entropy has placed around all of time, space, to ensure you that there's something beyond the fields we know, that there's something outside our little lives that is either great and terrible, or great and scary, or great and glorious, or uh, just or just big and big and explosives. Being able to uh, blow up a planet. Uh, there's many lesser uh, side effects that science fiction, if it's done right, can also do. Hard SF can inspire people with the glamour and the romance of engineering and technology. And there's many a there's many a, a rocket scientist or an engineer who was turned onto it by Star Trek, by by uh, uh, engineer Scotty. You know, mm-hmm. um, who by the way, do you know why he was made? Uh, why he was made Scott? Because no. all the engineers. All the engineers in this in this in the nineteenth uh, century were from Scotland. They had the best. They had the best engineers. Uh, uh, James Watt and the, uh, mm. uh, you know, the uh, the guy uh, Maxwell, the guy who invented the four laws of uh, electromagnetics. All those guys were were Scotsmen. So it was it was a it was a commonplace thing for an engineer to be back in the day. It was an easy shortcut for the uh, for the reader to to for the viewer to to grab onto. Um, uh, soft SF. So hard SF is is to inspire people to be engineers and to tell people what the romance of of science is. Dystopia novels and novels about Frankenstein's monster are warning tales to tell you what might go wrong with your science, uh, and to and to uh, warn you to keep your keep your little hands to yourself and not to go poking around in a in a wasp nest that you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, most soft SF uh, works by, soft is not a good term for, for this. This is, I, I'll say social or, or psychological or political SF. Uh, they want you to explore what the ramifications of differences to our way of life might be, uh, usually produced by a difference in technology, but not necessarily produced by a difference in technology. Uh, A.E. Van VanVoe's uh, Players of Null A and uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Always Coming Home just had a different social structure, a different social setup, and invited the reader to speculate as to how men could live if they didn't if they didn't live in a society like what we're used to. Those are meant to stimulate and exercise the imagination, and also to uh, to warn you that the future is not going to be like the past. Uh, and uh, space opera is meant to uh, appeal to your inner nine year old. And to blow things up,
0: <laughs> of course. As Lycurgus like says, if something doesn't blow up every five thousand words, he starts to get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't even, I don't know if we need to go that far, but I, I appreciate the the principle. So another question.
1: five thousand and not five hundred. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you can always turn up to eleven. Eighty-eight uh, well, so,
1: e. uh, had a said that he had to put in a. Uh, a plot twist, or a startling idea, or a science fiction concept every every five hundred words or so. Otherwise, he would otherwise he would start getting nervous. He wrote he wrote roller coaster uh, ride kind of kind of books where you had to uh, uh, really really cling to your seat in order to uh, in order to keep track of what was going on. So,
0: and he was actually uh, the third of the big three, right? He was he was the yes, real
1: absolutely absolutely positively. Mm-hmm. Most people these days think of the big three as Asimov, Heinlein, and Arthur C. Clarke, but in reality, Arthur C. Clarke was not a member of the John W. Campbell Jr. stable of writers. A.E. Van Vogt was the guy who whose short story, The Black Destroyer, really kicked off the, the golden age of hard SF science fiction, which is funny because his science fiction is not hard SF at all. He, he rarely uses realistic or uh, a science to get a uh, to, to, to get a feeling of, of flavor for similitude. But what he does get is the romance and the grandeur and the glory of, of the scientific uh, revolution. Uh, but he's a, he's a lot more wild than Isamov or Heinlein. And I think he has not aged well, which is why that, uh, even though he was quite famous in his day, uh, very few people know him these days. I was privileged to write a, uh, a book called Nelly Continuum, which was the third, excuse me, believe that the fourth book in, his, in Van in World of Nelly series. Uh, and I got permission of the, uh, permission of the widow, uh, who was really the nicest, nicest woman I've ever spoken to. She's really, really kind. And, uh,
0: oh, that's that's a coup. Uh, that's amazing.
1: Oh, it's uh, I I I got to write my favorite book. I got to write a sequel to my favorite book by my favorite author. Even though is the reason why I got into science fiction. It's also the reason why I got into uh, uh, Saint John's College in Annapolis and why I got into the interest in philosophy. Because his his gimmick in his story was not a new invention. His gimmick was a, a new science of human psychology, and so he thought that the uh, he was he was a uh, he was a fan of uh, I.B. Korczbinski's uh, non Aristotelian philosophy, hence the term world of null A. Null a is abbreviation for non Aristotelian. And he mm-hmm. thought that by using multi valued logic systems, humans could become much more sane in a, in, in a scientifically trained fashion, the same way we now uh, can use material building materials to make skyscrapers and airplanes and, and railway trains railway and so on and so forth. Now, I, I myself don't don't buy multi-valued logic systems in any in any way, shape, or form. I think that they can be reduced to a convenient binary Boolean systems, and I don't think I don't think you're going to outsmart Aristotle. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I mean, uh, but but you don't need to apologize The romance of thinking that there was going to be a breakthrough in human psychology that would usher in a uh, a peaceful, almost utopian world was very appealing to to, uh, to my young mind because the main character that overcame his foes because of his his essential sanity his essential logical rational nature not because he was stronger or faster or smarter see and that was that was very interesting to me when I was a kid and very very appealing so I loved the chance to write this to write this uh, book uh, uh, for uh, for the uh, state and uh, I'm sorry that it was not uh, more famous or more popular because not that many people are uh, even familiar with it even Evendo uh, anymore, though they still are f- familiar with uh, Heinlein and uh, Animal.
0: Well, I'm curious, how did you get that writing gig? How, how did you get permission to? Well, here's here's how it
1: happened. Here's how it happened. I uh, saw a uh, uh, notice in a trade publication of the uh, of the um, the name of the uh, estate, and I. Uh, Simply uh, wrote to them out of the blue, introduced myself, and said that I was an author who had, at that time, I had like four books under my belt. So I wasn't, I wasn't a nobody, you know. But I wasn't, I wasn't a newcomer. But I wasn't big and famous. I wasn't too big and famous to to make a deal with them. And uh, I got a phone call back from the uh, agent, and the uh, agent gets me on the phone. And he says, "Well, I'm, you know, because you're because you're not a nobody, <laughs> I'm willing to." Uh, <laughs> you about this idea uh, but I'm a little uncertain because I don't think any modern publisher I don't I don't trust any modern editor to correctly edit an A.E. Van Bost style book because he had a unique style the only person I would trust to do it would be David Hartwell tour books mm-hmm. and it with, with the biggest smile I've ever smiled on my face I said back to him that's my editor and that's my publisher <laughs> So uh, uh, if you're willing to make a deal with him, then we can make a deal. So while they were still negotiating the terms between them, I wrote the book. <laughs> in, in a frenzy of, uh, of inspiration. And I knew, because I had been thinking about, uh, I mean, I had read everything Van Vo has ever written except for his true confessional stories that he wrote for magazines before he read science fiction and his, like his handbook on hypnosis, basically every other word he's ever written I've absorbed. So I was able to write a book that had nothing of me and all of him. My not, if you read my book, you're not going to read me. You're going to read. You're going to read him. It's just. It's just like it came out of his pen. And because of the way he writes, he left enough dangling threads and un, unsolved mysteries in the in the third book, that I was able to weave together other things that also tie in other things that he's written that I, I knew were part of his philosophy of life. For example, I gave Enro the red, the, the main baddie from the from the book, uh. The violent male syndrome that he that Van Vo describes in another book called The Violent Mail, which was his one uh, mainstream book, it, t- takes it takes place in, place uh, in communist China. China. Uh, so the negotiations went went uh, poorly for a while, but my agent, uh, uh Jack Byrne, managed by mi- d- dint of oh, <laughs> by the the reason why the, I should say what delayed the, what delayed the negotiations was that the guy I, I talked to passed away uh, oh and his boss had to take over his, his work and his boss hadn't talked to me and didn't know me. And he thought I was just some you know interloper <laughs> that, <laughs> that I was trying to take advantage of, of, you know, a poor, a poor old widow or something. Uh, and I hadn't, you know, I didn't get an opportunity to prove myself to him because I had already, I basically proved myself to the, to the agent. So my, uh, my hats off and my compliments to my, to my agent, Jack Byrne, who managed to thread a very difficult, uh, negotiation, uh, uh, shoals around the, uh, around the, re- the island of, uh, coming to an agreement. But everyone eventually came to an agreement and, uh, I got the, uh, I got the book written.
0: Well, and that's so. not the, Van Votes isn't the only playground that, uh, well, that you you've gotten to play, then he isn't isn't the only. Oh other no, I, world.
1: I, I so was. I, I was honored to do a short story in the Jack Vance style, and I can, oh, if that, I may boast, I can do a pitch perfect Jack Vance uh, voice, uh, in the uh, in the homage volume "Songs of the Dying Earth," which was put together by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. Uh,
0: that's impressive. Um, and,
1: oh, I it, it was, I was I was I was impressed. Uh... uh at least I was very proud of being able to sell a story to those guys, especially since the other guys in the volume are Tanith Lee and Neil Gaiman and Rob <laughs> Silverberg and all, all the big names, all the giants of fantasy, you know and there's, <laughs> and there's, and there's little old me among the giants, so I was, I was exquisitely pleased with that but just between you and me, I, I thought I did I thought I did a better Jack Vance uh, impersonation than, uh, <clears throat> than they did uh, but excuse me, not quite My, my, I was the only short story whose ending was not as cynical as a Jack Vance short story should have been because he's he's kind Mm -hmm. of a detective writer, Vance is, and he he likes his film noir kind of endings. Where if you notice in a Jack Vance story, the guy almost never gets the girl, I think this, I think there's only one where he's even together with the girl at the end, and that's uh, that's the Demon Prince's books. Uh, which if you haven't read, let me recommend
0: absolutely, I'll take that recommendation. Now, have you read them
1: or not?: I have not yet read um, read the, uh, the the Demon Prince's books by Jack Vance because you really will good. you will never be impressed with another supervillain again until after you <laughs> <laughs> after you see what he can do with it. Well that's a hook. My, my wife is making comments in the background, but it's not her turn. Uh, the wife thinks they're in your genre. All right. The first one is called Star King. The second one is called The Killing Machine. The third one is called The Palace of Love. The fourth one is called The Face. The fifth one is called The Book of Dreams. And the premise is very simple. There's one survivor of the Mount Pleasant uh, raid massacre where a group of five space pirates and their men descended on a planet and destroyed it. And only a guy, only a grandpa, and the son survived. And the grandpa trained the son from. Uh, grandson from age five or so to be a super ninja detective killing machine his mission in life is to destroy the people who who killed his entire planet so it's Count of Monte Cristo in outer space and it's uh, brilliantly done
0: yeah she's right I have to read this now <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks uh, William Hope Hodgson is another author that I I was able to play in his his background yes uh, the story behind that is even is even uh, more complex. I had run a Nightlands role playing game in school and I had only ever read the first half of the book because it came out in two volumes from the Lynn Carter uh, Ballantine Books imprint. So I didn't know what happened. But I, I made up all this additional material as to what things would have to be like on a day by day level because my player characters in my d d game were walking into the the last redoubt and seeing what things looked like and how things were being were being run and uh and i ran a whole game for like half a year so you know i had all this i had all this material made up for the uh what was surrounding the uh the last redoubt and the uh the other monsters including ones that i made up myself and and the ones that livo hodgson had made up and uh I saw a notice in a uh, trade magazine, I, excuse me, I started to tell a story previously, but th- th- this is the one, about someone who was collecting Nightland story, and I said, aha, someone's writing stories in that background? Because he's from 1912, so he's in the public domain, anyone can, anyone can write a story in Oz these days, because it's in the public domain, anyone can write a story in, in uh, the Nightlands, uh, but I didn't know the editor, and he, uh, he had a 10,000 word uh, limit that he was going to buy. So I tried to write a short story, and it, it was like 30,000 words. And I said, I think I can narrow <laughs> this down. So I would, I would get it down to like uh, 20,000 words, and I would go up every day to, the, uh, to my little writing nook in the corner of the attic and write and write furiously and come down and tell my wife, jeer, I've, I've managed to get it down to 15,000 words. I think I, can, I think I can get it you know, in, into shape to, to show to Andy Robertson. She said, good, "Good, good work, dear." Then I would go upstairs and I would write and write and write, and I'd come down and say, "Dear, I have cut it down even more. Now it's seventeen thousand words." She would go, "That's that's longer, not not shorter," and I would be a little confused to this whole longer shorter thing. And I would, yeah. a friend of mine, I mean, a guy I met at a, at a uh, at a convention, who had written a book called The High House. Uh, and his name is James Stoddard. Sweetest guy. He was a really nice guy. Uh, he just won the Compton Cook Award. And he and I fell in with each other because I had also just published my book, Last Guardian of Everness, and his house, his, and we both had magical houses in our books. My magic house was called Everness, and his magic house was called Evanmere. So we immediately <laughs> became, <laughs> became good friends, and we, we had read all the same uh, books in our youth. So we read all of the Lynn Carter uh, Balatine fantasy series to play books. And we're writing books in that style, in that genre. Well, it turns out that he knew Andy Robertson. He knew the guy who was running the website. So he said, well, go mm. ahead and send your 20,000-word you know, story. So I sent it in, and this was the most highly polished story I'd ever polished, because usually I don't rewrite my stories ten times. Usually I write them mm-hmm. once or twice. You know. Uh, well, Andy Robertson bought it uh, and paid me top dollar. It was like, you know... A, Five cents a word or something ridiculously high. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Ten pence a word. So, uh, so I, I, for the first story I sold him, I was able to replace my broken, uh, stove. With him, replace my broken uh, stove. With the second story I sold him, I was able to replace my broken refrigerator. And the third one, I think I replaced the broken microwave. So dishwasher, excuse me, below that dishwasher. I loved selling stories to Andy Robertson. It was great. It was not until after he passed away that I saw something he had written for some, uh, something else, uh, and, I, and I don't remember the exact details, where he talked about my story, and he, I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought he didn't like one of the stories I wrote him that he thought it was the most haunting and beautiful story he'd ever read in his life <laughs> and of course I was in the impression that he just kinda thought it was okay but he was willing to pay me for it uh, and he thought that I really stood out from among the other authors in his anthology because he thought they were basically like fanfic writers and I was a, I was a pro well not only was I a pro but this story had haunted me since my school days and I don't know if you've ever run a role-playing game, ever run a d and game where you make up a yes. lot more detail and background in your world, and it comes alive for you, and you fall in love with it, okay? So this, this stories that I was giving him, they were works of love. I was really into them, you know? Uh, so And that and came across. I, I think that came across in his stories. And uh, uh, Vox Day at Castalia House put, put, all, those, put all the stories together in an anthology, and they were connected. The, the stories are interconnected. Uh, called uh, uh, The Nightlands or Tales from the Nightlands or uh, Awake in the Nightlands. Awake of the Night. Oh, sorry, I can't remember the name of my own book when I'm trying to, uh, to urge people to buy it. And some people say it's the best thing I've ever done and maybe they're right because I can't tell. I'm just the guy who does them. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't judge. I don't try to get emotionally involved with my characters. I do my business. They do their business. Sometimes they live. Sometimes not. But it's it's business neat it's business either way so uh, what
0: are characters
1: characters are controlled split personality syndrome where ghosts and ghost? spirits from parallel worlds come into your brain and tell you the news of what's going on in other universes i have no idea what characters are yeah so pick pick one of two <laughs> pick one of two answers Characters are little little bits of yourself, where you're trying to to draw out the logic of what you would be like if you were someone else, Mm. and they come to life because because there's a certain logic to the spirit world that we humans don't understand, but we can we can see it when it happens. Some characters are flat and dull and mechanical, and like you know all characters I write, but occasionally a a, a good artist will. inject so much life into the character that they kind of life of their own, and will even surprise the author. They'll do things and say things that the author did not, did not expect beforehand. And those characters turn into, and if, they, they, if they like uh, Hercules going from being mortal to being a god, sometimes a character takes on so much personality that he breaks out of the ordinary, and everybody knows his name. Scrooge is a character like that. If you know someone who's a Scrooge, then you know exactly what he's like. Tarzan is like that. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes is like that. Sherlock Holmes is the ultimate in the rational man. Uh, Tarzan is the ultimate in the noble savage. Uh, those kind of characters take on a uh, the glow that surrounded the mythological characters, the heroes and demigods of old. That's why, if I can draw this back to the, the first comment, that's why mm-hmm. I call science fiction the mythology of the of the scientific age. It is trying to get the science fictional view of what these oh, mythical yeah, characters, characters are like characters I'm are not like. sure if Tarzan, Tarzan Tarzan counts but he's uh, uh, he's close enough to science fiction he's he's speculative at least he's a nearby neighbor if he's not on our main island
0: well he's certainly popular enough I, I was reading a recent post of the Castell house blog where uh, I was real back, back in the day there there was Tarzan bread and Tarzan ice cream, and of course all the <laughs> the cereals and the pulps and yeah. People, um, did they overlook just how big the pulp figures like Tarzan and the Shadow were?
1: The Shadow was really really was 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 big. He was in every he was in remedium. He was in radio. He was in movies. He was in in pulps. He was in comic books, and uh, he basically set the Set the stage for all of the dark sneaky batman like superheroes, all the avengers of the night which uh, have come after him in the same way that i would argue uh doc savage set the set the standard for all of the bright superhuman superhero uh science hero type type guys who come after him. He even had a fortress of solitude just like Superman mm.
0: yeah so if you have you ever had a character right who just seems to, to come up and introduce himself. Who almost seems to spring, just fully formed, like Athena from Zeus's brow, if, if you will. That didn't have to put any work. At all in into creating. Just seemed to pre-exist almost.
1: Uh, most of them, I've been very lucky that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, uh, my characters are spring out of role-playing games. I I uh, take uh, Wendy and Raven work were. Raven, Son of Raven, was the character that I ran in my wife's role-playing game, and he was the main character of uh, Last Guardian of Everness. And he has a lot more personality, in my opinion, than Galen Waylock, who I made up for the book, and he never quite, uh, maybe authors should not, should not criticize their own books, but I thought he never quite came to as much of the life as he wanted to. Whereas his dad, the, uh, the Vietnam military vet in the wheelchair, who was the most highly decorated guy in the, in the service at the time, he had plenty. He had bags of personality. He was from from the get go. He had his own personality, which was sad because he has a lot more. He, he has a lot more of a foul mouth than I do, so I can't read that book <laughs> aloud to my kids. Because <laughs> he, the guy was a marine. I mean, the guy was a the guy was right. a kick butt soldier. So uh, yeah, he's
0: earthy, you
1: know. Yes, yes. He was he was earthy. So the answer is yes. <laughs> it happens to me frequently. In fact, it happens to me. More frequently than than it doesn't happen. Usually, if I am not having a character spring to life spontaneously, I will merely steal someone from Greek mythology, change the name, or leave the name the same and stick them in the spot and then say, you know, I'll get I'll get Menelaus or uh, or uh, Agamemnon or uh, one of those guys to step forward out of the dim mists of the past and to put on a spacesuit and act out his his role in my story. That way, I don't need to make anything up. I just, yeah, in, their some, domain,
0: so okay. in their public domain, so you're okay. In their public domain, you're
1: okay. Well, not only are they public domain, but you can't you can't copyright personality types anyway. If yeah. you wanna have if you want to have a dark mysterious avenger, you don't have to you don't have to pay Bill Finger or uh Maxwell Grant anything for uh uh you know for the shadow or for Batman. He's <laughs> winged vengeance. That's what I did in my last book. Yeah. Of course, I gave you so, uh, he, – but here's, but here's the other thing I ought to do. I collide two or more personalities together. So I'll take someone like you know Hermes, which is, a, which is an archetypical personality type. You know that Hermes is it, the prince of lawyers. He's going to be fast. He's going to be clever. He's going to be cunning. He's gonna, he is the guy who has enough rope to hang himself with. And you mix him with someone else, a uh, brand of amber or something. Or, or you, you make him halfway between that and um, uh, Thomas Edison. And, and he becomes a different kind of guy, say. Does that make mm-hmm. sense what I'm saying? And so the that's resulting cool. vector of the collision of the two different personality archetypes will get you a new, a new personality that's not just a cheap knockoff copy of someone else's, of someone else's work. It's a cheap knockoff coffee, It's two people's work, but it will fool it'll fool the reader. They'll 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 think it's uh, real. It'll fool you too. The, the, the people come to life when you do that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, it's been overdone in the comics, but in uh, in books, if you swap the sex of a of an archetypal character, sometimes you get an interesting interesting side effect. Like Batgirl doesn't have the same personality as Batman, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Can a? Yes, is yes. I know this is yes. okay. Go ahead. No, no, ask well, anyway. No, ask anyway. <laughs> That's all the time we have. No, I'm kidding. We, we can go on as long as you want. But uh, can a a bad person write good science fiction? Is there well, sure. a some sort of moral uprightness requirement?
1: I certainly hope not. Otherwise, I'd be disqualified. Same here. Uh, i'm i'm a I'm a supernaturalist i I don't think the material world is all that there is. I believe that most writers most poets open themselves up to divine madness and that the gods come down and give them ideas and that we're just the donkeys that are carrying the the uh, the the mailman on our back and the mailman is not the one who writes the letter he's merely the one who carries it so when I write a book and I hand it to the reader i'm in the position of the guy who uh, the the letter comes from the muses. The letter comes from that mysterious, mysterious whatever it is, where ideas come from, and no one knows where that is. Harlan Ellison thinks it's Schenectady and I'm not going to argue with a man as creative as Harlan Ellison. But wherever it is, it's an unknown. Uh, my personal personality will will influence the water passing through the channel of my of my brain, but uh, and I might give it some flavoring. So that if I write the story of Ma- The Count of Monte Cristo in space, it's not going to be the same as if Jack Vance writes it. It's not going to be the same as if A.E. Van Vo writes it. It's not going to be the same as if Bob Hyland writes it. See? Right. But but I don't think it's coming from me. I think all I'm doing is providing the conduit, providing the, uh, the introduction. Uh, the ideas then... Go into the reader, and they are planted like a seed in the soil of his imagination, and then what springs out, and, and what he enjoys the fruits of that, is only half me, or I should say, half the story, and the other half is him. That's mm-hmm. why readers' reactions to your stories are uh, uh, unexpected and uh, can be a lot deeper than you than you expect. Now, I should say, let me let me see if I can explain that more clearly. On a shallow level. When I, for example, go to see the movie Dark City, um, Uh. and I see floating guys wearing fedora hats who look like a German expressionist movie, and it reminds me of a Vanva story I read, and it reminds me of a Keith Lemaire book that I really liked, and it reminds me of a a black-and-white silent movie that I really liked, that makes me really positively react to what I'm seeing that other people in the room with different backgrounds are not going to feel. Though they may also still react positively to the storyline of a man in a kind of a Gnostic uh, world of evil trying to find the truth buried under layers of false memories, false appearances, and and uh, uh, false fronts. The archetypical stories, the, the deep stories that, that speak to many men, uh, they're getting their ideas from the layer of the universe where the really big ideas live. The ones that are universal. Mm-hmm. Love and death. Uh, good and evil. Uh, uh, leadership and following. Uh, 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 fate and free will. All, all the big questions. The ones that are shallower, they're only going to appeal to a more limited audience. Uh, if I write a story about George Washington, it's probably only going to appeal to Americans, for example. Or <laughs> if I write a story about uh, a railroad executive, it's probably only going to appeal to uh, devoted uh, libertarian capitalists, especially if I read it like Anne Rand, <laughs> which I can't do, but uh, <laughs> I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, and some stories like, um, oh, I don't know, some stories are so so limited in their, their appeal that they're not going to get much of an audience and, and, and uh, they're just too personal, if that makes sense. And I think, yeah, that, I think an, that an author who's doing that kind of work isn't really paying attention to his proper calling. He's not, he's not listening to the muses. He's not listening to the, to, the, uh, to the mysterious gods that give people ideas. Because every human story oh. should have some universal element to it. That's why we can read stories from, from cultures not our own. That's why I can read uh, Homer, who was a pagan living in the Bronze Age, with perfect enjoyment. Because the things that, are, that he and I share in common are still deep and abiding. Concept that you're not allowed to write stories in other people's cultures but your own and not allowed to read stories except that star people who look exactly like you and have your same uh, race and sex and uh, sexual preferences, That is that comes from hell. That is a satanic Mm -hmm. idea. And the only purpose of that idea is to drive away the creative spirit and to make it so that you are unsympathetic with people who are unlike you rather than able to see what you and that other person have in common that makes you brothers. The best way to, to learn brotherhood with anyone is to read the story from his point of view and walk a mile in his shoes. And that's, that's one thing that all writers, not just science fiction writers, are, are supposed to do.
0: Hear, hear, yeah. I mean, you, you and I are both Christian, you know, and when we say that the, the purpose of fantasy and science fiction is, is to lie in service of the truth, you know, we, obviously, we, we believe that you know, the divine logos, uh, in of the person of Jesus Christ, is the truth. For us, pr- truth is a person.
1: Yeah, truth is a guy. He, he was, he was yeah. talking to Pontius Pilate, who said, What is truth? And Pontius Pilate didn't realize who he was talking to. <laughs> but you and I live in a Pontius Pilate age. The world around us these days, Pontius Pilate's cynicism and, and limited imagination has become popular, has become the default assumption of the world. In my daddy's time, in my granddad's time, it was not that way. The Christian assumption in those days was the default assumption of the of the Western world, of the United States.
0: Yeah, Jeffrey but, Johnson talks about in that in Appendix N about how they're, you know, in the pulp era, there are science fiction stories about astronauts who visit new worlds, and they're like, all right, there are intelligent beings here. We need to convert them to worship of Jesus Christ.
1: Specifically, that yeah, was concerned. from that was from Pellucidar. That was from uh, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, David Inns, who Yes. Gets in a broken mole machine and, and winds up on in the inside of the interior hollow world, which of That's course right. is inhabited entirely by gorgeous cave girls, uh, brutal warriors, and mind reading birds and dinosaurs. So, <laughs> so, that was that was back when people took their awesome sauce straight.
0: Yeah, but but it, but at the same time, you know, coming from um, the the Christian assumptions about the world, that doesn't sure. mean. That we just dismiss anything written by, by pagans or heathens out of hand. And Paul says, test everything, retain what's good. And because of the universality of mankind, as one human nature, we are, you know, guys like Aristotle are going to get things right. Just not only.
1: Not only do I agree. Not only do I agree, but at the risk of turning this into the Christian, the Christian hour, let me say this: I've never seen any other culture that paid attention to any other culture besides itself aside from Christendom. The Christians wrote down and kept Aristotle alive. The Romans did not even bother to write down the, at that time, living language of the hieroglyphs to allow them to translate what was written on the walls in Egypt, which they ruled. Does that make sense? There, there was no science of anthropology among the pagans. There was no curiosity about Egyptian history among among the Romans, among the Greeks. Do you hear what I'm saying? Absolutely. Only the Christians go, I'd like to find out what the mythology of those people is. I'd like to find out who the gods are that they worship and write their stories down before they're eliminated. Uh, uh the uh the Muslims, they blow up ancient statues of, of of Buddhas and and so on and so forth. They burn books, not us. Now, uh the enemies, the, the uh the leftist enemies of Christ always uh us uh, pretend that we do the things that our deadly enemies do and then they that's just an old trick they just they just reverse the values of any of any equation in order to get the uh, in order to get the opposite value from the real from the real value they just assume (laughs) we we act like islamics and and treat our women as badly as they do and and so on and so forth because they want to hate us and they can't they can't they couldn't do that if they they knew what we were really like but the, uh, the reason why I think that, that uh, drawing it back to the original con- question, I think science fiction is uniquely Christian in its approach. Because uh, a science fiction story is a scientific romance. A romance story is a story about uh, man's relation to the universe told from the point of view of the individual merit or the individual demerit of, of the hero. The stories of the pagans didn't quite have that same flavor of romance. Romance actually came out of the Middle Ages and out of the Renaissance. Uh, the uh, the uh, epic adventures in the quest of, of knights and ladies or uh, Canterbury Tales, which wasn't just knights and ladies, but also you know, the, <laughs> the wife of Bath and the, and the miller and the, uh, and the nun's priest and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Common, you know, common men and, and high and low were also included in, in, the, in that book.
0: Beowulf, Beowulf is a
1: very interesting artifact because it is a, it is a Christian, uh, excuse me, scholars are disagreed in their opinions as to what's going on. My mm-hmm. opinion is that a Christian was writing down what his pagan ancestors were like and he did not want to treat them with disrespect, but he does mention things like, in passing, human sacrifice and that they're damned, but he shows their uh, brilliance and their glory, but also the essential melancholy and sorrow of the pagan worldview. If you read the Greek myths, those do not have happy endings. I don't think it's until like uh, the story of uh, Psyche and, uh, and Cupid, <laughs> late Roman, that you have happy endings for, uh, for, Greeks, for Greek myths. Maybe you could argue that the Odyssey, you know, Odysseus gets back, to, back home again and kills the suitors and gets his wife again has a happy ending. But it's, it's like they have more in common with film noir movies than they do with anything else. So next time you're reading about the stories of Odysseus, I want you to imagine that it's Humphrey Bogart in black and white, and that the uh, that uh, uh, Calypso is is a is a sultry dame who's trying to lure him to his destruction or something. There's a choice now. <laughs> pop in there. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of women in, in those in those film noir uh, uh, detective books that are just like just like Cersei. There's they're witches who just lure you in, they turn you into pigs. I mean. You know, metaphorically speaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll even go one better. And I, I totally agree with what you said, but not only the fantastical element, but the scientific element. And let's not forget that, that the church invented the scientific method. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, science was, was still born everywhere else. Other cultures came up with, uh, you know, they had geniuses uh, who in isolation would come up with... Uh, the, An invention. And, but yeah.
1: not with the scientific uh, progress. Uh, our uh, uh, Mike Flynn, the science fiction writer, who I, I assume you know, because he's a, he's a he's good, and he he wrote uh, *Evilheim*, and he wrote uh, um, uh, uh, *In the Country of the Blind*. i uh,
0: TF, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> and so he wrote a long series of articles about the, the relationship of the church and to uh, to the growth of science. And I myself, whenever, whenever someone tries to argue the point with me, really start listing the number of scientists who started their own scientific school of thought, like the father of geology, the father of the Big Bang theory, the father of genetics, and the father of, the, uh, of, of modern astronomy. <laughs> Just, but I, I, I limit myself only to churchmen, only to priests and monks. As soon as the guy. Uh, drops dead from boredom after I've hit the 100th or 200th person on the list, I don't feel it's necessary to argue the point. I do occasionally point out that when a culture in the West has rejected Christianity, as the Nazis did and as the, Russia, as the communists did in Russia, that what happens then is science goes off the rails. The, 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 uh, the Nazis had brilliant technology, but they believed in a racial science that was merely junk science. It was merely garbage. And in Russia, Lysenko was made the uh, minister of the scientific, uh, uh, whatchamacallit in Russia, and he would just jail people that disagreed with the scientific theories. He mm. said that evolution was a bourgeois theory because in real life, c- groups cooperated for the sake of the class struggle, the same way they do among men, and that and and Darwin was too individualistic for him and so he thought he could change the characteristics of growing plants without paying attention to the genetics, merely by introducing the elements of the materialist dialectic from Marx. And of course that is one of the many things that, f- that led into the Ukrainian famine. And what I like is that <laughs> intellectuals in that school of thought and in that tradition, who have taken over universities even to this day, Never pay the price for that, never issue an apology for that, never even seem to be aware that it's, it's happened. So, hmm. Without the Christian worldview, it is difficult to understand why science should work. Because if I was just a materialist and I would say, I'm merely one animal among many, my brain was created by an, uh, a natural process that was organized, but not intentional, not directional. Why would I think that my brain processes have any necessary fundamental relationship with the natural processes? Why would I think the laws of logic in my mind and the laws of nature in reality in the the material world have a one-to-one correspondence? Why should math work to describe the motions of the planets and the motions of the atoms? A Christian can answer that question quite easily, but outside of that, unfortunately science, the empirical sciences, is based on metaphysical assumptions that science itself cannot confirm or deny. And so you need to have a deeper worldview than the scientific worldview to have the scientific worldview. Does that make sense? You need to have the axioms. You need to have the foundations of the tower in order to have the tower. And the tower Mm -hmm. itself cannot serve as its own foundation because no one can, I mean, you can't stand on your own head.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and one definition of metaphysics is that the stuff you need to know before you can do physics. Right. You know, that which is prior
1: to or... that. That, that would be Aristotle's be... definition, and and you and I previously said you're not gonna outsmart <laughs> you're yeah. not gonna outsmart Aristotle. One drawback of the scientific age is of course that, that that people who are drunk with progress tend to dismiss anything that happened in the past as if it was if it's going to be superseded. This I think is based on a misreading of, of Darwin's origin of species. And it springs mm-hmm. out of Hegel and Marx and Nietzsche and other, if you'll pardon the expression, crap pots. Who didn't seem really to understand what what philosophy was supposed to be doing, and and wrote a bunch of stuff that people read in philosophy class, but which I would not, I would not count as real philosophy.
0: Agreed. Well, we have been at this for over an hour in the <laughs> show. Normally runs ten or fifteen minutes, but um, you know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't restrain this. This conversation it was so fascinating. But before we go, we wandered pretty. Another-
1: we wandered pretty far afield. Do you want to have any last questions about uh science fiction? We didn't even discuss how uh, the difference between science fiction and modern fantasy. Well,
0: we'll we'll have you back definitely. <laughs>
1: do you want to do I get to give an ad for my uh, for my latest and greatest book or did what was what just yes, uh, already sufficient?
0: No, yes, you do.
1: Go ahead. Uh, City of Corpses is the second book in the trilogy. The first book is uh, uh, a girl who's forgotten her own name and her own past, wakes up in, in, in the in a hospital room and is attacked by werewolves and goat-headed monsters from, from Celtic mythology. She discovers to her surprise that she, has, she is highly skilled and trained in martial arts uh, and finds out when she's flung out a window that she has a magical ability to, to float rather than fall. But the, uh, that ability has a, has, a, has a certain drawback because uh, evil creatures come to get, come out of the shadows whenever she uses it. She doesn't know where she's from or where she's going or what's going on in life. So she's kind of like you and me in that respect. But hmm. she can see things other people can't see and do things other things people can't do. So she's like Jack Burton from <laughs> Big Trouble in China in that respect. And in the second book, uh, she uh, gets a job at the... Uh, uh, cobbler club which is the she's learned enough to know that there's a conspiracy going on and that there's a secret war between a group called the Supreme Anarchist Council which for some reason is a highly organized group of anarchists, go figure and a group called the Last Crusade which apparently consists of two maybe three teenage boys <laughs> who, are, who are the world's only hope against the Supreme Anarchist Council. All of mankind is under the spell known as the Black Spell of Everness where they're not able to be aware of or to remember uh, the supernatural creatures that are ruling us, that are ruling mankind and taking advantage of us. The the anarchists want to overthrow that system, which you would think would be a good thing. Hmm. But they don't want to free mankind afterwards. (laughs) Uh, And so she knows that this this, uh, uh, nightclub is like a neutral ground where where the the factions from the various fairy worlds and human worlds can meet because there's three the humans are the people of the daylight world and the the half breeds who are half fairy half human are from the twilight and they don't really belong to either world and the elves are from the night world and there is a darkness beyond the night which maybe be uh which plays a role in the uh, in the plot uh so humorous, half adventure, half uh, girl worrying about the guy she's in love with because she's a girl. And uh, mm-hmm. she uh, has to she has to carefully follow the threads of her the clues she has had to discover who she is and what she's doing because it, it as best she can tell, she's a superhero and sidekick to a guy called winged vengeance <laughs> who, <laughs> Uh, As as she finds out from uh, friends of hers, he leaves people, after torturing them into signing confessions, he leaves them hanging by the neck in Central Park. And the humans can't see his victims, but the elves and the half-humans can. Hmm. And he's out for vengeance, hence his name. So.
0: It it sounds like the English translation of some classical Greek statue or something. And I love it.
1: Oh no, she's she's uh she's Japanese, and most of the uh most of the mojo that she uses comes from Japanese mythology because she's from the uh she's from an Oriental branch of the family. She's a moth, I should say. It should be no surprise, as mm-hmm. are the other major characters in the other in the other twelve books. The idea there is that the moth family is a family of the twilight. They have some fairy blood in them, so they they have the second sight, and they can and there's they're poets and madmen and magicians and uh, people with weirdness are, uh, are hanging around them. But they're, uh, they always help each other uh, even when the day and the and the night are against them. So she's kind of a, a unique case because with her memory loss, she's been cut off from her, from any family support and she doesn't know which side uh, they're on or that she's on, if you see what I'm saying. So she's got to find out everything about herself before she knows what, what's going on. But she does know that she's in love and that she was that the guy asked her to marry him and marry her and she doesn't know who it is. <laughs> and, and if you know any women, you would know that she would that, that women find that kind of thing very uh, very, annoying. Very, very annoying. So just to find him again before he gets eaten by the, the uh, sold to hell or something. Something terrible's gonna happen to him. Right, she doesn't that know what he's a lot or
0: dead. That, that is, dead. is, dead. That that is that that? my book five City of Corpses. I'm, I'm that's to, I'm book the promo for your book. Yeah, available now for that's the, the promo. Yeah, yeah, that was
1: that was supposed to be the promo. It's a it's a book about a girl who's annoyed, who can you karate know. chop her, her hand through a werewolf skull. No, excuse and me. She has feather she, she she will. What say again?
0: And as, uh, yes. She's got feather uh, faults F- and that will. Yeah. Tremendous. Well, that's why so.
1: I, I wanted to have an explanation as to why she could swing like Spider Man or uh, fly like uh, Batman mm-hmm. Beyond. Yeah. I mean, the glider the glider one from the future. I don't know if you ever saw that cartoon.
0: Oh, yeah, Terry McGinnis, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, so she's got, she got like, a Terry McGinnis suit. But it's, uh, but it's, uh, uh she wears a, uh, the mask is a uh, Japanese no-mask of a of a fox spirit, a kitsune. So her, mm-hmm. her, uh, super name is, uh, is, a, a Fox Maiden. And everyone who sees her thinks that she's still working for the guy, the, the vengeance-crazy guy, and she's not, you know, so... Oh, the uh, the talking dog Ruff makes an appearance in this book. Yes. Oh no, excuse me. He makes, an appearance. He makes excuse me belay that. He makes an appearance in the next book. I had to move that scene. Oh,
0: oh no no oh, he is
1: in this book, but only Gil can understand what he's saying. So it's like listening to uh, Luke Skywalker talk to C three PO. He's still funny though, even though you can't understand a word he's saying. Oh, and Chewy. He's he's like, yeah. Not to not to uh, yeah, like Han and Chewie. Uh, But not to spoil the big surprise, I should mention Ruff is the guy who figures out who the girl
0: is. (laughs) All right. I definitely don't want to spoil it for readers. No, no, no. If you're not convinced... Folks, if you're not convinced to pick up Muffin Cobb with the Five City of Corpses now, I don't know what will. You can get it at the link below. Also, be sure to check out John C. Wright's journal. we have got a link to that. Uh, And then my own humble offerings in the Soul Cycle. Um, My whole series is currently on sale for... Less than $9 in the third book, Secret Kings, edited by Mr. Wright's lovely and wife, L Gigi, Lamp Lighter Wright. It's currently $0.99 cents for three more days.
1: I'll also mention that I'm doing an ongoing weekly pulp adventure story called Lost in the Last Continent, mm. which you can see at my, we- uh, my website once a week. It has a new, new episode each week. And the sequel to City of Corpses called Tithes to Tartarus, uh, is written. It's sitting on the editor's desk, and then it's going to come out later on this year. So that book is already written. So, so all the plot threads are all tied up, and the ending is already done. Okay. Beautiful. Well. Yeah. And well, John, my tour book comes out this winter. Count to Infinity comes out this winter, from tour books.
0: Ah, can't forget that. But yeah. Thank you. It, it has been a delight and an unmixed pleasure to have you. Thank you for sharing your your insights. Quite welcome. And- this, and uh, I, so this if I, remember, if, I
1: remember, if I could remember what it is that you're grateful for that I did for you as a favor, then I'd feel glad. But I can't, so I just assume that it was actually my wife who did it and didn't tell me. But I'm happy to help. I'm happy to help you out with your with your career if I can.
0: Well, much appreciated.
1: Certainly. We uh, we God bothers have to stick up for each other. Otherwise, the uh, the seculars will uh, will undermine us and, and uh, destroy our careers.
0: Well, they they'll know we're Christians by our love. So this has been Geek Gab.
1: But are, are you sure? Because I, I was hoping it was by our snark. Because otherwise, I'm, I'm hosed. Because I can't really. <laughs> nah, oh, you no, know, I, I didn't realize. No, no, no. I didn't realize I was something for such a difficult religion. Why can't I just have one where I get to kill people in the name of uh, Odin or something, and uh, you know, get seventy two virgins when I die? What's the what's well, this it, difficult stuff?
0: It's the easiest and the hardest thing you'll ever do. It I've, is because,
1: of course, you get help. I mean, you get you get aid. Come on, hi. Huh? Sorry, mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to get all theological again, but uh, uh, God bless you, sir.
0: God bless you. It, it, it's fine. I'm a theologian. Absolvo today. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know I how don't to say. To... I, I don't know how to say. I talk too much in Latin, but uh, Mia loquacious uh, maxima. <laughs> so I'll, we can say goodnight there. Good night, Gracie.
0: Good night, everybody. So, uh, also, that or will kill me if I, I don't remember to say uh, subscribe. Click the button below. But then also, you've got a double secret subscribe by clicking the little bell icon. Or you'll not get the notifications of a new show. Which we try to do every Wednesday. Um, usually around 5 Eastern. But i more than happy to make an exception this week for our special guest. This has been On the Books. Special guest, John C. Wright. Thanks again to him. Thanks for everyone at home for listening and keep reading.